0: This is the 15-minute lunch break with Pastor Hugh J. Harmon here on Never Had It So Good Gospel 107. Today, I want to talk about how have we gotten love wrong. Romans 12 and 9 says, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. If there were ever a word that humanity thought that it had gotten a complete grasp on its meaning, that word would be love. Love has been extensively poeticized in prose and in song. The divergent synonyms that we have developed for love give us a panoply of rhymes, reasons and rhythmic wording that not only describes love, but gives gives love a tangible form. Those synonyms include terms like deep affection, infatuation, delight in and for, and it even includes nouns like darling and sweetheart. William Shakespeare, the bard of Avon, told us love is a smoke raised with the fume of sighs being purged, a fire sparkling in lover's eyes being vexed, a sea nourished with lover's tears. What? Is it else? A madness, most discreet, a choking gall and a preserving sweet. Those stirring lines on love come from Shakespeare's opus on love we all know as Romeo and Juliet. Many of us may have never read the entire play or even saw the play in action, but we know of Romeo and Juliet and his connotations and its connections with the meaning of love. Back in 1955, a ballad that gained huge popularity, which had music by Sammy Fane and lyrics by Paul Francis Webster, tells us simply that love is a many-splendored thing. Maya Angelou, the late Maya Angelou, our very own American poet laureate, a woman so talented that she was asked to write poetry for presidents in the African-American tradition, gave her thoughts on love. She said that love recognizes no barriers, it jumps hurdles, it leaps fences, it penetrates walls to arrive at its destination full of hope. Even Dr. Seuss, famed children's book writer, gives his take on love when he says, you know you're in love when you can't fall asleep because reality is finally better than your dreams. As tremendous as Shakespeare's literary genius was and still is considered, as profoundly reticent as that line is from the Fane and Webster song, as unique as the poetic styling of Miss Angelou was, and as famous as Dr. Seuss has become in his moving and memorable children's prose, they all fall short of the length, the breadth, and the depth of God's idea of love more than the greats of literature, more than the geniuses of song. We have a great God-breathed text we know as scripture that unfolds the dramatic twists and turns and the greatest of all love stories, the greatest of all love ballads called collectively the word of God. I know that's strong to say, but as a Christian and living my life with a Christian worldview, that's where I start. That's how my life is framed. The Bible from the first capital letter that begins a sentence to the final period in the book is a text that articulates with great detail the profound love that God had and still has for humanity. When I say that, that is even more troubling and con- and disconcerting for the critics of the text because within the text there's so much hurt, there's so much pain, there's so much controversy, there's so much crisis, but even in love are all those uh, descriptors. Unfortunately, like the first human beings, we have chosen to take that primary example of love, that sa- standard of sorts, and we have decided to develop our own derivatives of what love really means. This is why we have a thriving uber popular cottage industry of authors who pen what we know today as romance novels. These novels are what we know are cleverly crafted tales of fluttering hearts that cross paths in a myriad of ways and fall headlong in love and weave these beautiful adventures and lust and infatuation with each other and we call it Love. Apart from romance novels, we have another print media subculture of women's magazines that spend enormous amounts of print real estate on articles on how to snare a mate. There are three steps to attracting the man of your dreams, five ways to keep the man of your dreams interested in you. And Some of the titles are actually too graphic for me to include in this family-oriented discourse. Nevertheless, you get the point of man's version of the story of love is big Business. It's not limited to novels and women's magazines like Cosmopolitan and Vogue and Mademoiselle. This business of using the symbols of love and affection to sell products goes from the subtle business of style and beauty magazines that make falling in love about physical features to making love about how you can make someone feel by just being around them to outright salacious, sexually explicit material that sells sexuality and promiscuity as love. This co opting of the love of the love or rather co opting of love has led to more heartbreak and heartache than anything. Most of you reading or listening to this discourse that have been living as adults or pre-adults for quite some time have been involved in the business of human interactions. You've had your share of what you believed and understood to be love. You felt the butterflies. You've had the experience of a tied tongue and able to speak in their presence. Whoever that person is that you're thinking of may be. You've known what it was to sit uneasily and bothered because they had not given you a call all day. You've also felt the heartache and the headache of impending and inevitable loss, not necessarily due to physical death, but more than likely due to a relational causality. We've all experienced what we believed was love. However, before we define what love is from a biblical and Christian perspective, I would like to talk about the ways that we've gotten love wrong. I don't purport to be an expert in this area, but I do claim to have some experience that I believe can be a valuable help in us developing a right perspective or a truthful perspective on the ways that we have gotten God's idea of love wrong. The first way that I would like to highlight is how we've devalued the word love. We've cheapened its value by ascribing love to any and everything, mere affection or delight. We say things like I love my car, or I love those shoes, or I love that coat, or I love that outfit, or I love those flowers, or or I love my boyfriend or girlfriend. And, and in saying that, some of you already are barking at my suggestion that saying I love my boyfriend or girlfriend is somehow something that shouldn't be said. My point in that statement is that the affection, care, and concern that we may have for a man or a woman that tickles our fancy in some way, but with whom we do not plan to build a future, then that's not a relationship that you ought to tag the title Love. We go as far as loving hairstyles or you seeing the frivolity with which we are measuring our prescribing love to things. The word love, like any other word that is as potent as it is, the more places, the more things, the more situations within which we use it, the less gravitas will people put into our declarations our proclamations. The more we say we love this, that, or the other, the less folk will take us seriously. Love was never meant to be put on things. It was and always shall be a virtue that is reversed or reserved for others, for other human beings. Another way that we've gotten love wrong is that We've made love partial and exclusive to certain people that fit into certain parameters and who adhere to certain ideals that match ours and complement ours. And God quite early on in scripture gives us this command. Love the Lord thy God with all your heart, soul, mind and body and love your neighbor as yourself. When we hear that and we lay It alongside scripture, it is almost a natural conclusion that one would love God, especially considering all that God has done and is doing for us and just simply sustaining our lives. Humans have no problem loving someone or something that they believe is returning to them some benefits for the love that we show or are supplying us benefits that we may not even be able to repay, at least at the same value as we are receiving. So loving God is not a stretch for us, especially if we recognize that he is a supplier of our needs and the source of our help. It is what God commands us to do next that is challenging. He says, now love your neighbor as yourself. This is where we get crafty and we make our neighbor fit into our neat categories when the Lord's definition of neighbor essentially meant anyone that we come into contact with. But we made our neighbor the persons that look like us or talk like us or believe like us or live like us or practice the faith that we practice. And Jesus was challenged with this question, according to the gospel of Luke, by a certain lawyer, a smart guy, a young man, a, a, well-to-do guy, an expert in the Mosaic law who wanted to justify and vindicate the ways that he had been making his love partial and exclusive. Here was how Jesus answered. He tells the people the parable of the good Samaritan. But I'm going to use the version in John's gospel. It says, and Jesus answered and said, John chapter 10, verse 30 through 37, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. By chance, they came down a certain priest that way. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise, a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by On the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him, and he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And on the morrow, when he departed, he took out two pence and gave them to the host and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. Which now of these three thinkest thou was the neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? And he, the rich young ruler, the lawyer, said, He that showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said unto him, Go and do thou likewise. We've given the parable the name the Good Samaritan, but in Jesus' time, it would have been an oxymoron for a Samaritan to be called good by a Jew. The relationship between the Samaritans and the Jews was rather caustic, and each side saw each other as inferior. Jesus had taken this young man's shrewd question and sure assumptions and turned it on his head. He most likely thought that his neighbors were limited to his fellow Jews, uh, more specifically to his other lawyers, scribes, Pharisees, those among the nobility of the priests. In the parable, Jesus makes it clear that those very people represented by the priest and the Levite actually acted the least like the injured man's neighbor. The neighbor in the story turned out to be the least likely to help or to fit this man's ideologies of neighbor's. As simple as the story sounds to us and as easily as we would have assumed that the Samaritan was the best representative of a neighbor for that young lawyer getting past his prejudice would have taken a great deal. Love for many of us today stops at those prejudicial lines. We don't love beyond race. We don't love beyond ethnicity. We don't love beyond culture. We don't love beyond even similarities and familiar backgrounds. If we make this text contemporaneous to the 21st century United States of America, this exchange may be with the interjection of a young black man being asked about whether a white police officer was his neighbor or vice versa. The hostility and suspicion that exists today between those two entities may actually come very close to the hostility that existed between Jews and Samaritans during the telling of this parable. The 1960s southern region of the United States where segregation ruled the day would also fit as a good comparison with how white segregation is felt about their black neighbors. More than anything, this is an area in which we as a nation have gotten love wrong. It was in April of 1960 when civil rights leader, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in an interview on Meet the Press stated that it was a sad and tragic state of affairs in America when 11 o'clock Sunday mornings are still the most segregated hour in Christian America. That was in the volatile and caustic times of red summer and that was surrounding the violence and the vitriol that accompanied the fight to end Jim Crow in the South and to give people of color greater access to the freedoms and the rights that the rest of America had for so long enjoyed. The unfortunate thing is that that hour on Sunday to this day in 2018 still remains deeply segregated. Now, not only along the lines of colors of the people in the pews or the pulpit, but also along the lines of how we worship. We are divided in how we view faith, justice, and equity. I dare say we are even divided in how we view morality and piety. As much as the church has become commercially successful and in making inroads into media and scholarship, we are still very much a church that is still delineated by color, class, and even creeds. We've certainly gotten love wrong in how we express it to other. Believers, let's get love right. Let's get back to what God intended. Let's reach across the aisles and bridge the gaps that exist. Let's get to know what real love is. This is Pastor Hugh J. Harmon. This is 15-minute, your 15-minute lunch break here on Never Have So Good, Gospel 107, signing out. Be blessed, be encouraged, and give real love a chance.